the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. Let's get it going right here. Now, this is New Generation Declassified, and you're listening to an all-new New Generation Declassified here exclusively on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and every single week, we take a journey back in time. We go back and look at the finer points of professional wrestling, and in fact, we are looking, if you didn't know, at the new generation of the World Wrestling Federation the time in the mid-90s you know you love to have forgotten, but we are going to bring it back to you today in another classic, classic look at a bygone era, an era that didn't get uh, much love back in the day, as the kids say, but we're going to shed a little light onto uh, aspects of the new generation that we'd like to maybe uh, shine a, uh, a bigger light on, quite frankly. Because there's a lot of stuff that gets overlooked based on the fact that people don't like the new generation era. Now, I think it's unfair. You know, obviously, if you listen to the show, you agree with me. Um, but in looking at content to develop for the show and looking at episode topics, I, I've got a lot of really cool ones on paper. Uh, over the weekend, I was looking into um, parts of the buildup to Royal Rumble 95 and a focus on uh, Pamela Anderson's involvement, looking at some of the deeper stories. What was it supposed to be? Maybe where was it going to go? What was the uh, reaction? Blah, blah, blah kind of stuff like that that we're looking at we're also looking at you know more superstar related pieces to come uh i'm in the middle of a large move uh from one place to the next so it's uh it's kind of hard to uh, <laughs> do anything ahead of time i kind of do things more uh when i can versus uh carving out that special time every single week to uh, record so once i get settled i've got a lot of cool stuff and have some very fun guests on tap to discuss uh, new generation declassification that we uh, we like to bring to the airwaves every week. Uh, this week specifically, something that's really caught my eye in my uh, preparation process and looking at uh, a lot of the footage that I've been reviewing, I've talked about over the last few shows. You know, I've been really finding some great inspiration on different YouTube channels and on some Instagram accounts. Um, I've fallen into this uh, rabbit hole of 1995, uh, which when I ranked the uh, the years did not really give this one too much love. But focusing in on March 1995 specifically, uh, as things have been going on on the television programs in March 1995, you've got the great buildup for Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam Bigelow, which can end up being a an, its own show at some point. You've got uh, the Shawn Michaels Diesel buildup to WrestleMania 11. You've got the Bob Backlund Bret Hart rematch from Survivor Series at WrestleMania 11. So a lot of stuff going on in March 1995, including what we're going to talk about today. And that is a little tag team feud that was created for a short amount of time 
uh, with the uh, <laughs> with the emphasis being on what I thought was the crowning of King Mabel and King Mabel's ascension to the top of the WWF card. Obviously, in, in 1995 at SummerSlam, Mabel would take on Big Daddy Cool Diesel and be in the main event spotlight. And if you look at the title of this episode, Men on a Mission versus the Smoking Guns for the WWF Tag Team Championship, yeah, you'd think that uh, this was all built uh, around the the rise of King Mabel, but going back and watching the week-to-week programming, you kind of see that that was a piece of the story, but there were some other little things that they did as well to help further another story in the uh, the WWF at that time. So let's go back to March 1995. In fact, it was just uh, mere weeks away from uh, WrestleMania 11. Of course, WrestleMania 11 being not the most uh, remembered WrestleMania in terms of the moments. Uh, it took place on April 2nd, 1995 at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut. So not really one of the more glamorous locations that you could have had a WrestleMania. Uh, 15,000 fans sellout. So they did uh, a good showing. I'm sure they gave away a ton of tickets. Uh, WrestleMania 11 and, of course, the buildup with Lawrence Taylor and Bam Bam Bigelow in the New York area was huge. And everywhere you turned around, it was in the Daily News. It was all over the television. It was on all the sports reports at night on the news. Amazing, amazing coverage for uh, a time when WWF wasn't really killing you with um, over-the-top business. But in March 1995, uh, as they were building, there was this really odd tag team feud that uh, began and kind of ended in a a couple-week span between Uber, super-duper babyface tag team, Men on a Mission, of course, Mabel Moe and their hype man slash manager, Oscar, and the then WWF Tag Team Champions, the Smoking Guns, I believe two-time Tag Team Champions at this point, uh, had a match built up on the syndicated television, most specifically the Action Zone and Wrestling Challenge. Uh, A couple weeks worth of build-up to this match uh, just kind of set the scene. Uh, this, if you talk about touring schedules for the WWF, uh, and going back and looking at the, uh, the actual touring schedule that they had in February and March of 1995, they went from February 17th all the way to about, and I'm just going to pinpoint this in front of me. Uh, so I don't uh, mistake this. They went from about February 17th to, uh, March 26th. Uh, and in Tokyo, because they did sp- split the crew and send people over to Tokyo, uh, they basically ran almost every day with give or take maybe one or two days off. I think the most I counted was three or four. Uh, so they basically were running a month straight leading up to WrestleMania. And it is fascinating to see, uh, including the TV tapings that we're going to talk about. Um, went from, if you look at February 17th, <laughs> concluded all the way to March 2nd was their first uh, day off. So pretty impressive run by that uh, group of superstars. Uh, and in the middle of all that uh, WrestleMania press conference to boot um, involved just a, a torrid, torrid schedule that these guys ran. And you could see how m- people might have had some sort of 
uh, dependence on uh, chemicals or substances because when you're running that ragged, it's tough to ever catch a break. It's tough to ever really find yourself uh, with some downtime. And we know guys like the party. We know guys who are going out and uh, fraternizing. And when you're on a loop like that and places that you, you, you end up, I'm sure uh, there's a lot of stuff that went on behind the scenes that we did not really know about, nor maybe should we know about. But uh, specifically, let's hone in on the tapings that began February 20th, 1995 in Macon, Georgia. That night, it was uh, a Monday Night Raw taping. It looks to be at least three weeks of television recorded, not including uh, dark matches, which, uh, you know, dark matches featuring uh, the likes of Jeff Barber and Jim Steele defeating Barry Horowitz in the Brooklyn Brawler. Uh, <laughs> the little tidbit on the history of WWE.com. Jeff Barber and Jim Steele came out to Jimmy Hart's Crank It Up theme music, which was also the theme song of the Young Stallions. Just kind of funny that they uh, they gave that to Barber and uh, Jungle Jim Steele uh, in this dark match in uh, Macon, Georgia. But this um, this was not really the uh, the greatest uh, raw taping that you could have possibly have seen. Um, nah, nothing really stands out. Uh, there's a match between Shawn Michaels and the British Bulldog that was on a couple of the commercial tapes uh, at some point. Um, they also had, there was a Lex Luger uh, Tatanka match that was taped, but I mean, really it was your run of the mill uh, Monday night raw taping that, you know, didn't really have too much going on. You know, it was just the three weeks worth of television and a little bit of a build to uh, WrestleMania, but nothing kind of beating you over the head. It wasn't any kind of go home shows. These were just kind of transition raws on the way to, uh, to WrestleMania the next night. They go from Macon, Georgia to Augusta, Georgia, February 21st, 1995 to tape the Superstar shows. So now here they also tape three weeks of programming. And that, again, shows you how much these guys were working on a nightly basis that the night before is three weeks of Raw. The night after is three weeks of Superstars. And in this one, again, it's not anything crazy. The, the highlight match, I guess you would say, if you were to really look at it and break down the card, I mean, you get Diesel and Bam Bam Bigelow at one point. That was a, a dark match. Uh, Lex Luger and Razor Ramon defeat Jeff Jarrett and Tatanka. Okay, I'll take that. Another British Bulldog and Shawn Michaels match uh, just for the uh, for the house. So, you know, you got some interesting matchups, but the Superstars tapings what were what they were. Squash matches with one feature match and feature matches to the like of, let's say, Adam Bomb beats Dr. Tom or Lex Luger defeats King Kong Bundy. So nothing that you, uh, you're you going to go out of your way to see, but when you watch them in uh, synchronous order like I have been, it, it's pretty cool. You know, you get you really get to get a vibe of what was going on at the time. And as a fan, we've talked about how you lived for these shows on a weekly basis. This was the only time that you got to see uh, your wrestling unless you had stuff recorded or you were going to the video store. So uh, you lived and died by Monday Night Raw superstars. And then your Sunday shows which were Wrestling Challenge, as well as the Action Zone. So the Action Zone takes the place of All-American Wrestling in 1994, and the Action Zone becomes a place where the WWF features more uh, marquee feature matchups that have stars in them, but 
you gotta basically sit through recaps of the other shows from the weekend, like Superstars and Challenge. But this was the interesting thing that I didn't remember, and I'm watching <laughs> both sides of the coin, Wrestling Challenge and the Action Zone. You get to see that they would record two sets of commentary for these matches. So give or take a squash match or this match, the smoking guns and men on a mission, you get two different versions of commentary over these events. And it's very, very interesting. One set of uh, commentary is gorilla monsoon and the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, or it's Todd Pettengill and Jim Ross, where Jim Ross almost plays the color guy to Todd Pettengill doing a lot of them. Not even, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even consider him to be play by play. He just talks more than Jim Ross does. And I, as somebody who really just loathes the commentary of today, where it's just way too jokey, way too not serious and really doesn't sound good. It, these were not very good either. <laughs> there are some the DiBiase and Gorilla Monsoon were very good together, but Jim Ross and Todd Pettengill are basically just riffing for the hour of the action zone. And I know at some point they would take the action zone into the studio and throw it to matches in the arena. But this one, they were actually, you know, seated. And I use air quotes when I say that seated in the arena with a, I guess you would call a green screen behind them or uh, just a, a big giant video film screen uh, behind them with an angle, uh, angled camera facing the ring uh, having worked at Titan Tower and in the production studio, I know which studio they used for that taping specifically. And it basically would just be a wall that would be in the distance with the commentator table or the table that they were looking at their monitor uh, that they would just kind of turn towards a camera and talk to it. And then behind them would be footage of the crowd and footage of stuff leaving the, you know, uh, uh, superstars leaving the ring. It was very interesting kind of hidden tactic camera tricks they did back in the day. But Jim Ross and Todd Pettengill on commentary, not one of the high points of good old JR's uh, broadcasting career. Uh, as for damn sure, it is just sticky to the max and not good. Just it was very, very annoying. And I actually was thrilled to find out Wrestling Challenge had the alternate commentary because I got to see matches that I kind of skipped over because I couldn't listen anymore with Gorilla Monsoon. I mean, how could you not love listening to Gorilla Monsoon? And then Ted DiBiase really wasn't bad either. He was used on uh, Royal Rumble 94 being his probably biggest show to do commentary on. But he also did some Monday Night Raw and did a lot of Coliseum video work. But here on Challenge, he was um, he was not bad at all. Um, one thing I thought was very funny with uh, Pettengill and uh, Jim Ross, they would plug the WWF hotline, which was one uh, 900, uh, you know, whatever, nine Oh nine, I don't know. No, nine Oh nine, is WCW, but they would plug the WWF's 900 number. And this was a number that I did call a lot back in 1995. We had a friend who, uh, parents didn't care if you called the hotline. So we would call it probably 10 times a day. Whenever we were at this one kid's house, just to listen to the Ross report or listen to a story or a rumor or uh, play trivia just to hear, you know, you're listening to the WWF. It was really sweet, but it costs a lot of money. Um, they plugged the Ross report like crazy, but they emphasized how you didn't get billed 
until you picked your option. So if you were cheap and you just wanted to call the WWF hotline, you could get to a certain point before you had to select what you actually wanted to do. And that's when your mom or dad would get pissed off at you for uh, using their uh, telephone to uh, call a 900 number. Uh, but I just thought it was very funny, the emphasis on it. And uh, I wish it was a little bit. I wish somebody had a cheat sheet for some of these teases that Jr. had. There were two that I found really interesting. One was uh, he said there were two young superstars who were looking to make their way to the WWF. And I was sitting there going like, hmm. March 95, two young superstars. I thought one might be uh, Dustin Rhodes as Goldust, and I couldn't imagine who the other one was. Maybe it was uh, Terrorizing, a.k.a. Jean-Paul Levesque, a.k.a. Hunter Hearst Helmsley. But I uh, I would love to have found out who it was. I just uh, didn't know. The other tease being that there was some sort of baseball superstar that was trying to get into the WWF or I, I couldn't, the way he phrased it was so weird. Like he was either interested in refereeing in the WWF or was looking to work out. And it was just the way he said it was so odd, but those were two teases for the hotline where I was like, man, if I had 99 cents a minute and a dollar 99 each additional minute, I'd want to call this number and find out what the heck they were talking about on the, uh, the WWF hotline with Todd Pettengill and uh, good old JR Jim Ross. Uh, this was also, I believe, on a uh, return back to the WWF for JR. They kept referencing him being away and moving. And I assume that is when he moved to Connecticut. And, you know, in the JR promo in 96 with Heel JR, he uh, talks about moving to Connecticut, the overpriced hellhole. I know uh, John Paz loves that, uh, that line. But, um, they reference him moving and uh, moving specifically to Connecticut. So I was wondering if that was uh, something that was going on at the time. Uh, but like I said, these were broadcast or these were taped in the, uh, the final week of February in 1995, the show where men on a mission battle, the smoking guns was recorded on February 22nd, 1995 and was broadcast on March 12th, 1995. So this sat in the can for, a good almost 20 days. Uh, the Action Zone Wrestling Challenge taping was in Charleston, West Virginia. You will remember that in a minute when I talk about one of the points uh, post-match where that is uh, brought into uh, play. But one of the little, little nuggets that I love to point out about the television tapings and how many shows they tape, this one's kind of hard to figure out because they didn't tape specific shows of the action zone they would sporadically tape matches and broadcast them anywhere between march 12th and all the way to march 26th 1995 so i mean now we're talking over a month in the can uh of when these were recorded and that's the stuff i find fascinating earlier in the 80s uh, and early 90s you would find they would tape a, a match in february and you wouldn't see it on primetime wrestling till april so it's um Fascinating stuff how they used to run the schedules uh, back then. But one little nugget is in Charleston, West Virginia, or excuse, North Charleston, West Virginia, uh, in front of 6,000 fans. And it says in parentheses, a heavily papered 6,000 fans. Chris Candido with Tammy Sitch pins Reno Riggins with a top rope Frankensteiner. Candido and Sitch played baby faces and were known as Chris and Tammy from Team Spirit. So originally billed as Team Spirit, not the Body Donnas, and as baby faces, Chris and Tammy, who would become 
Skip and Sonny, the Body Donnas, uh, get a nice little uh, dark match here at these Wrestling Challenge tapings in, in North Charleston, West Virginia. Of course, Candido being a star of Smoky Mountain uh, around this time, uh, very interesting to see that this was the starting point for uh, one Chris Candido on his ascension to being a Body Donna uh, team spirit, Chris and Tammy. Uh, so, Men on a Mission and the Smoking Guns. This match had a two-week build to begin it with a squash match uh, for Men on a Mission where they were just out of nowhere kind of crowned the number one contenders. Uh, in that match, you see the crowd is massively behind Men on a Mission. Every time they come out, if you don't recall, Men on a Mission would have a little rap that they would do, maybe about the match that they were about to go in or a couple other superstars or another team. Uh, just a little bit of a throw your hands in the air, wave them like you don't care kind of vibe, 1990s personified. Um, and they were over. I mean, Men on a Mission was definitely a team that you liked if you were a fan. You know, they were always uh, entertaining. You know, obviously Mabel just being a massive, giant, giant man and Mo being for a, a, a smaller giant man, you know, uh, pretty versatile. He could do some things. But, you know, you weren't watching a men on a mission match and anticipating a uh, five star classic. You were just anticipating uh, two guys in a tag team wearing purple and gold, uh, throwing their hands in the air again, waving them like they just don't care and uh, beating the bad guy team. That was really all you were interested in. So that's what you got when you watched a men on a mission match. Uh, so they, they, they have a squash match where they become number one contenders. This is built up as a big time uh, tag team match on the action zone where that night in Charleston, West Virginia, uh, a baby face versus baby face match does occur. And I will drop the, uh, the link to uh, what we're going to talk about in the, uh, the description on Twitter where you can witness this yourself uh, as well, that uh, after a very, very competitive match and a, a back and forth, uh, nobody really dominates, but when they do, they sell well. They uh, they play it very, very right down the middle. Really, some kind of jockeying for position, maybe a little bit of cheating, but nothing crazy. Out of nowhere in this match at the end, um, a hot tag leads to uh, Billy and Bart dumping uh, Mabel on the outside, which it's kind of interesting to see Mabel leave his feet in such a manner. Uh, drop kick to the outside. Uh, Bart would then follow uh, out to the uh, the outside of the ring. Mo would climb the top rope and attempt a flying body press, which gets a little botched. There's a little bit of a uh, misstep. And Billy turns him over and pins the uh, the, the the secondary mem member of Men on a Mission, Mo uh, Bobby Horn. Great interview in the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling archive. If you could check it out, um, pins Mo, and uh, you just celebrate a Smoking Guns victory. The commentary off the charts, uh, talking about the sportsmanship and talking about the uh, the the great contest we just saw between two fighting tag teams, and they were very happy to see it. Where out of nowhere, uh, Mo and Mabel return and lay out the smoking guns and turn on the smoking guns in such a way that at the time, not seeing this one coming, you know, we always joke about Tatanka and Lex Luger and did you see it coming or not? This one was completely out of left field. 
not telegraphed. You couldn't really you couldn't really anticipate this based off of the match buildup and just a few promos. And what they did was just some backstage promos. Hey, uh, smoking guns, we're coming for your tag team championship. They put over the fact the smoke uh, the man the men on the mission had won the championship for a very short amount of time the previous year and were looking to regain the belts. Uh, there was one false finish in the match where it looked like maybe they had won, but they didn't. Uh, and frustrated with the outcome, Men on a Mission destroys uh, and poor Bart Gunn uh, two times. This had to have been a rib. Just gets devastated and smushed by Big Mabel in the center of the ring. And it is like painful to watch when Mabel sits down on that chest cavity. Just how impactful it is. It had to hurt. And uh, Bart gets a little bit of the uh, short end of the stick with that on both times we will talk about where the uh, smoking guns get taken out. But this was uh, unbelievably executed. Uh, the crowd is shocked. Uh, the announcers, uh, uh, Pettengill and Ross, are putting it over like it was the turn of Benedict Arnold's. And uh, it was great. It was a great match. It was about a 10 minute match, maybe a little bit less. Let's see if we have an official time. If we look at it here, smoking guns, defeat men on a mission. Uh, nope, no time. But uh, it even says here on the history of WWE.com that after the match, the challengers brutally attacked the guns, which is what they did. They just destroyed them. We're leaving the ring to booze where people were waving their arms like crazy on the way out. Uh, leaving to a chorus of booze and including uh, a great uh, uh, post-match <laughs> almost interview with Ray Rougeau, Canada's favorite son or Montreal's favorite son, as he would be referred to countless. And I've spoken a lot about Ray Rougeau and his great work over the last few weeks. Um, Mo declares to Ray Rougeau after they say that they don't want to talk and they don't want to uh, address anything. They de Mo declares, and this is a quote I wrote it down, we are the new generation. And I thought, wow, that is so perfect, especially for this show. They declared themselves as the new generation. Definitely a tag team of the 90s that you couldn't put in any other generation. Uh, couldn't put in the 80s, couldn't put them in the 2000s. This was so perfect for 1993, 1994, 1995. Um, but declaring themselves the new generation, I thought that was really sweet. And you got to think if they went all in a little bit more with the maybe gangsta attitude that was going on at the time, you know, the Tupac and Biggie uh, ascension in the pop culture ranks, maybe they could have done a little bit more with Mabel. Now, they did turn him a little ghetto. You know, he had some uh, alley cats and some uh, urban music as his theme music when he would be the king. And I did like that. But, you know, maybe they could have gone a little bit more all in. Um, maybe look what you'd see with the nation of domination, um, a year or so later, but what they do on this show is they then build up, uh, a, a possible, uh, response by, uh, the guns that, you know, they, they're not happy. Uh, but we hear from men on a mission first The men on a mission have Oscar, uh, come to the ring. Oscar, who watched his team destroy the smoking guns to, a uh, sheer stunned disbelief uh, came out to address the crowd. This was on wrestling challenge, but they also broadcast this on the action zone that they uh, heavily respect the smoking guns. They take the tag team championship very seriously and got caught up in the moment. And for that, uh, on behalf of Mabel and Mo, they apologize. Uh, but this was Oscar delivering it. Now, Oscar, you know, 
uh, what do you say about Oscar? I've never been a big fan of Oscar. Um, having met Oscar uh, post fandom, you know, as part of uh, different shows promoted and also shows attended as, uh, you know, someone uh, <laughs> who's, who's needing to work and be there. Oscar is like a low rent Virgil. Okay. Oscar always seems to pop up. He's always miserable looking. He's always got a puss on his face and nobody really knows what to do with him. They'll bring their little encyclopedia over and get it signed. But otherwise, Oscar is just one of those guys that it's not that I wasn't a fan of his work. I kind of nothing his work. I thought he was great with men on the mission. But, you know, when they were done uh, as a babyface team, they cut Oscar loose because he didn't want to become a heel, which I'll get into that in a second. But. I just, uh, you know, Oscar really didn't do much. He wrapped him to the ring. He wasn't like a active guy. He never got physical. He never got involved. He was just a hype man. And, you know, he, I guess he was a wrestling fan, but he definitely, uh, you know, he added something to the character that they felt that cutting him loose when he didn't want to turn heel with men on a mission really <laughs> cost the WWF nothing and did nothing to affect men on a mission as a, a heel team. So Oscar has told the story before on many podcasts because he's done a lot of them uh, that he just he did not want to turn heel because of the uh, effect it might have on children. He had spoken to uh, stressing, you know, to go the right path. Don't do drugs, you know, don't bully stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether I believe that or not. I'm not sure, but I don't know how many people Oscar was really talking to uh, outside of uh, WWF arena. So, you know, whatever. He didn't really give much to the presentation post babyface. So Oscar goes out and, and gives a, a apology on behalf of his team, which leads to uh, the following uh, show, which this is all. On the, like I said, tape the 22nd, the matches the the 12th on the 19th of March is when Oscar gives the apology on the 26th of March. We get a tag team match of the smoking, uh, excuse me, of men on a mission defeating Ken rapper, not Ken Raper, even though it's spelled that way. And Jr. does call him Ken Raper uh, and Gary Sabaw, uh, men on a mission, take the mic and they now have lost their blonde hair and they are now just uh, black hair. And they uh, apologize to the smoking guns in the same manner. They call them out to the ring and they do the old, uh, you know, bait and switch. They put them over and say how great they are. They say they might be the greatest tag team that WWF has ever had and the greatest champions uh, all celebrate. The music starts to play and then boom, they turn on them yet again, lay them out, squash them, Bart gun squashed again. And men on a mission is now full blown heel. Uh, officials have to come down. They destroy the smoking guns again. And you're saying to yourself, well, a few weeks later, and I think it was May, uh, Mabel would start his rise to the King of the ring. And here we go. Sir Mo was, uh, you know, his mouthpiece, his manager, uh, since Oscar was gone as he was too good to become a heel. And, um, you say to yourself, well, this was the rise of Mabel, but really, and this is the interesting part again, I implore you to watch the match. I'm not going to break down move for move and high spot here. It's a great 10 minute match that told the story of, and this is what is fantastic about it. When you watch the WrestleMania 11 buildup and the WrestleMania reports, they start to promote a smoking guns versus Owen Hart and mystery partner match at WrestleMania 11. Spoiler alert. 
Owen Hart ends up winning that match with his tag team partner, Yokozuna, who had been gone since Survivor Series after losing a casket match to The Undertaker and was off TV. The buildup during these uh, exchanges with the men on a mission is that they are now weakened. The smoking guns have been weakened to the point that anybody who takes them on is going to beat them. And when it's Yokozuna, former WWF champion who comes back now with a full beard, if you remember, uh, changing the look up just a little bit, uh, easy pickings for Owen Hart and Yokozuna. And Owen Hart, Yokozuna team, I thought was wonderful. I thought it was a great mix of styles, a great uh, exchange of the size of uh, Owen being small and fast and Yoko being big and strong. So it was a great mix. But if you watch this as it unfolds and with this uh, WrestleMania report that would be taking place every week, that's what they're building up to the smoking guns and who this mystery partner is. And when, Men on a mission destroys the smoking guns. What do they do? They talk about how they are now weakened for this match where they don't know who the opponent is. And Ted DiBiase on the wrestling challenge side says he knows a lot of things, but he can't figure out who the mystery partner is. Jim Ross says, you know, I hear a lot of rumors, but everybody's tight lipped on who the, uh, the mystery partner was going to be. If you recall, the Anvil had just left the WWF. So, I mean, I remember it thinking it was just going to be the Anvil again. Uh, I remember even possibly thinking that it was going to be the British Bulldog uh, turning at that point, which would happen about a year or so later, not at WrestleMania 11. But then you go, what you would do at the time was you would get the roster of uh, another company and see, well, who do you think it could be that's going to uh, make the jump to uh, to the WWF? Or you would be like, all right, well, I haven't seen this guy around for a long time, so maybe he'll come back and be Owen's tag team partner. I don't recall it ever being uh, on my mind that it was going to be Yokozuna, but I thought that was a great team. I, I really thought it was very cool uh, with Jim Cornette and uh, Mr. Fuji there by uh, their side. It was uh, a great mix, and I thought it did the job uh, perfectly well. So uh, all's well that ends well when you see this just random buildup between the smoking guns and men on a mission over a two-week period. Well, no, it actually ended up uh, leading to a bigger thing. And it was the fact that Owen Hart and Yokozuna would defeat the smoking guns because the smoking guns were hurt because they had gotten squashed twice, literally, and not in the sense of the match, but in the sense of the beatdown by men on a mission. So I'm looking over my notes one last time before uh, we wrap it up. But uh, yeah, I absolutely uh, suggest you go and watch this build. The I will add, maybe, you know what I'll do? I'm going to drop the um, uh, the link for the March 1995 Action Zone matches I've been watching, and you'll get to see the whole thing for yourself. Uh, one one cool thing, too, is you let it kind of ride. I got this. I, maybe something we'll cover in a few weeks. The uh, Black Phantom never knew it was Gangrel until I looked it up. And again, I just must have been sleeping for a lot of uh, this time and the new generation. But that's for another story. Just just watching the action zone. Very, very uh, enjoyable show uh, in terms of the matches. But mm, you might have to pause and mute the commentary uh, to get rid of JR. Or just seek out these matches on Wrestling Challenge because they were the same exact ones. Uh, but if you were in New York, like I was, you, you would watch Wrestling Challenge on Channel 5. And you would watch the Action Zone on USA. I think the Action Zone was on at 11 and Wrestling Challenge was on at noon. So you would pretty much see the same show. And uh, yeah, that's pretty uh, unbelievable. I just did not remember they did dual commentary. I thought they were separated. 
uh, matches. But nonetheless, memorable point of the new generation, uh, hidden gem, if you will. And uh, that's what I do this show for is to bring these hidden gems your way and to give you the opportunity to also experience these gems and uh, maybe suggest something to me. You want me to check out? You want me to watch? I am all ears and appreciate uh, everyone tuning in. So we'll wrap it up here for today's new generation declassified. If you want to follow me, it's at Chad EMB on Twitter, on Instagram. It's at IB exclusives. My website is ibexclusives.com for all my private signings and uh, baseball, wrestling, pop culture shenanigans. Uh, this website is tmptempire.com. Check out all the podcasts under the TMPT umbrella, including the uh, great franchise Shane Douglas, John Paz, and myself doing the Triple Threat podcast every single week. The franchise's brand of podcasting, 100% uncensored, unfiltered, and uh, franchise to the max on the Russo brand. Uh, if you also want to check out Eyes Up Here with the Queen of Extreme, Francine, you can catch me on there. Four shows a week on Patreon, patreon.com slash Francine podcast. And for those that haven't joined us on Patreon, you can get the audio on uh, Joe Feeney's great creative control network. So it's enough out of me for uh, somebody who's still waving their hands in the air and pretending like I just don't care. Uh, it's your old buddy, the Chadster. I will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.